0: Zebra School proudly presents Zebra Ears, a podcast for new parents. It is our mission to bring you relevant health and education content to help you navigate your baby's first three years of life in a calm and confident way. We've gathered some of the best pediatric care specialists and other experts to answer some of your most burning questions about parenthood. So thanks for stopping by. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. I'm Michelle Sandiford, and our guest today is Dr. Ryan Murray. Dr. Murray is an otolaryngologist. Some of you may be more familiar with the term ear, nose and throat doctor or specialist. Dr. Murray, thank you for joining the conversation today. Thank you, thanks for having me. Great, today we're talking about a baby's developing eyes and ears. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and what brought you to this line of work? What sparked your interest in this field of study and practice?
1: Sure. So, yeah, so the my training is, uh, for anything in medicine, it takes a long time. So I did a bunch of different sort of pathways to get to where I am now. Um, after medical school, I did a residency in otolaryngology. Uh, and then further beyond that, did additional training in pediatrics so I could focus more on kids. Uh, I had, I always had an interest in in kids, to be honest with you. When I went to medical school originally, I sort of always imagined that I would be working with kids. I've always sort of, I always used to joke that I get along better with really old people or really young people and that people my old age, I have a harder time with. So I always sort of knew that I would work with little kids. Um, And I really enjoyed uh, otolaryngology. I'd usually just say ENT, but I, I really enjoyed ENT. I think for lots of different reasons, I think the surgeries are really interesting. The anatomy is really complex. Uh, and one of the things I really liked about it was specifically sort of the, the contact with hearing and the senses in general. I really enjoyed how it was a medical field where we sort of, we interfaced with how people experience the world. So outside of vision, we are the ones, we are the physicians that sort of take care of hearing related issues, but we also take care of smell and taste related issues. Um, and also, I guess, you know, touch as well. So I, I really liked that interface and how people kind of communicated or, or uh, interacted with their world. Uh, and then, and in medical school, I got really interested in cochlear implants, which I thought were really just a fascinating uh, sort of technology and and the interface there with, between sort of machine and and humans and and how that interplay would would sort of uh, develop in the future. So, for for a lot of reasons, uh, ENT was a good fit for me, and then the pediatric stuff really made a lot of sense too, because again, with with kids, we see a lot of kids for I see a lot of kids I should say for hearing loss and. Uh, and, and including for cochlear implants, and so that's been really a, a fun part of my practice as well.
0: Okay, so starting someone at the big, at the beginning, we know that babies hear a great deal even before birth, and that you know I, I've seen people purchase uh, equipment to allow a parent to speak to a child in utero. So could you give us just a bit of what does a baby actually hear at birth? What what would be a way to describe their level of uh, sound interaction?
1: Sure. So, yeah, so certainly babies here at birth. Um, we we talk a lot about initially at birth, there's oftentimes a little bit of fluid behind the eardrum, um, but that usually clears within the first couple of days. Anytime there's fluid behind the eardrum, that's going to limit their hearing a little bit. But outside of that, mm-hmm. and, and some babies that clear that very quickly within the first few hours. Um, outside of that, they do hear. Um, it is thought in general that kids, uh, newborn infants, uh, hearing is a little bit sort of skewed towards the higher pitches that their, uh, inner ear anatomy hasn't developed fully. And so that they have a preference or a tendency towards higher pitches. And, and that's what sort it of makes sense. I think everyone sort of has that intuitive, uh, instinct to, to want to talk in sort of the, you know, the quote unquote baby voice, that kind of, that high pitch sort of voice, um, which kids attend to. So kids do hear, they tend to have a little bit of a, a preference for higher pitches, um, and and we and we we screen kids, and we can talk about that too. But we certainly screen kids at new at the newborn period, and we can identify very early in life, um, you know, how functional a kid's uh, hearing system is. Now, one sort of odd thing there's. There's both where you hear from your ear, but then also how that information gets sort of interpreted by the brain. And the interpretation part is still very rudimentary for newborns, obviously. They haven't had that exposure to their environment to sort of hone that, that ability to sort of filter out that information. So they sort of get like a big rush of, of sound information and have a hard time attending to individual sort of focuses of, of, uh, of sound, I guess. But, but they certainly do hear. And it's certainly great to stimulate the, the, those pathways as soon as possible.
0: Okay so that leads perfectly into my next question. Can you tell us about the hearing test that is administered at birth or right after and what exactly are you as a doctor looking for outside of just a child responding to sound?
1: Yeah so there's sort of two main hearing tests that are administered in the, as a newborn screening and the, the as a to sort of a backup first for a moment that in 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 this country and really in the world newborn hearing screening wasn't really widely available until the 90s and since then it has really revolutionized how we approach kids with hearing loss it used to be that kids who had some uh, who weren't necessarily deaf, but had sort of a moderate amount of hearing loss or a mild amount of hearing loss or a, a single-sided hearing loss would often not get identified as, as having hearing difficulties until much later in life. So until they were in their, you know, five to 10-year age range. And that really set them back a lot. They would have a lot harder time sort of integrating later on and really using that information. So our ability to pick up newborn, or newborns with hearing loss has been, has been a huge game changer for us, um, and it, it is really important, particularly in kids who are deaf, um, because those kids are, were, were often not identified early in life either. Um, for various reasons, so the screening tests that we use nowadays, there's essentially two of them. Um, there's something called an OAE and something called an ABR. And the ABR, there's there's both a screening version and a more uh, detailed, what we call a diagnostic ABR. Um, but as a as an initial test, it's, it's either the OAE or the ABR. And the OAE tests. This the response of the cochlea, the specific part of the little hair cells of the cochlea, as to whether or not they interpret or hear sound. And so you you send a little, you put a little insert into the kid's ear, and then send a sound in, and then the cochlea, it turns out, if it can hear, will send a signal back, and they can and we can record that and know if there's a there's a response. The ABR tests. A, it actually tests a little bit further up. It actually tests from where the cochlea receives that information and then how it goes up to the brain. So we actually sort of monitor uh, very specific little brain waves, almost like a like a, uh, an EEG that you would use to monitor a seizure activity. You actually look at sort of the the, the nerve response higher up from the cochlea up to the brain to see if there's a response. Um, and there's reasons that we would do both. The OAEs are a quicker test often and a little bit simpler to utilize. But the ABR is useful, particularly in high-risk kids, because there are a um, there's there is a rare type of hearing loss that only impacts the nerve of hearing or higher up. It doesn't affect the cochlea, and so you would miss that on kids who have or tested just with an OAE. And so for any high-risk kids, so kids who are born in the NICU or have a hearing loss uh, uh, history in the family, they would all get an ABR. And, and the truth is, in this area, most hospitals nowadays do just the ABR. It's not; it's less and less common nowadays that even as a screening test, the OAEs are used. So most of the time we do the ABR um, for most kids. Okay.
0: Okay. So, okay. I I think I learned a great deal because now um, when we we talk about cochlear implants, I now understand why it's called that. So that's very interesting. (laughs) But um, before we even get to that, I'd like to ask, could you walk us a little bit through the overall hearing development process to say approximately preschool? Like what what does that look like from the perspective of a doctor or a parent? Um, what would be different things that you would say are milestones for a child along the way?
1: Sure. So so kids, as we sort of said, kids certainly hear at birth. Um, and in the first few years of life, or sorry, first few months of life, I should say, um, you know, they become more and more attuned to specific sources of sound and particularly to the human voice. You know, it's a very good, it's, it's good to stimulate their uh, their uh, their auditory pathways and tune them into the human voice because that's what we rely on a lot. Um, that develops relatively quickly over the first year or so of life. Um, by about nine months to a year, kids will start to do what we call sort of purposeful babble where they'll um, They'll start to babble initially, where they make sort of repetitive sounds, and then ultimately will become more attached to specific objects or things. So, the classic ones are like "mama" and "dada." Um, okay. We the the sort of the the hope or the sort of the a general way you can think about a kid's develop or speech and language development um, is that by about a year of age, they generally have about one word beyond "mama" and "dada," um, and then but, but even if they don't have it by a year of age, that's not necessarily a reason for concern. One of the numbers that I talk about with families a lot is at 18 months, if they haven't developed one word beyond mama and data, then that is something that we would start thinking about intervening, or at least looking into a little bit more. Maybe that child needs some speech therapy, or maybe they need to do some de- more detailed testing to see how their hearing is developing. Um, uh, and then usually by that point, um, So the the initial tests that are done with kids, you can't get them to respond to you very easily. So um, for the first year of life, a lot of what we're reliant upon for testing is either the automated test or pretty general kind of behavioral assessments where you give them a sound and you sort of see how they react in the room. By around two years of age, we're starting to get a little bit more able to sort of isolate each year and do a little bit more detailed testing. And so, from t- age two years up for, for uh, neurodevelopmentally typical kids, we can do a lot more detailed testing in the office. Um, and that, and at that point, um, it's easier to sort of gauge how how well their hearing has developed. Um, there, it, with kids who do, who are born with hearing loss, um, there is about a about a um, a 1% incidence of some degree of hearing loss in uh, newborns. Sorry, sorry. Um, sorry, one, sorry. One in a thousand. I'm sorry. Not one percent. One in a thousand. I'm sorry. Uh, newborns. Okay. <laughs> um, and then that actually increases in the first two years of life. So by about two years of life, there's about two to three per thousand who have some degree of permanent hearing loss. So that first couple years of life, we do, we do end up seeing a, a, a reasonable number of kids who start to develop some degree of hearing loss and, And that is sort of accounted for, for kids who are, again, at high risk, those kids need to have regular surveillance for their hearing over the first couple of years to make sure that there isn't any development of hearing loss. Um, But but nowadays, we're able to, again, because of the newborn hearing screens, we're able to pick up most kids pretty early on in life. And if there are any concerns, we can usually do pretty good testing. And most kids nowadays are picked up before a year of age, um, unless their hearing has progressed over beyond that time.
0: Okay. So uh, what are some of the risks to a child's hearing outside of loud noises? We know that, and um, uh, what can parents do to help develop one healthy hearing habits? And if let's say someone who isn't a parent, what would someone who isn't a parent look for um, in interacting with children that might tell them a little bit more that maybe a parent might not see because they see a child every day? Are there things that someone on the outside might notice more, more particularly than a parent would who sees a child on a, a daily basis.
1: Yeah. So um you know, again, a lot of what we key in on is sort of speech development. That is usually our window into sort of mm-hmm. into how well a child is hearing. And, and that is both um we both look for sort of the number of words that kids have and then also how understandable they are. You know, can a stranger mm-hmm. outside of their family understand what they're saying? You know, sometimes kids have their own little sort of speech patterns that their siblings can understand, but but that may not be a good indication that they're really hearing well enough to kind of get by. Um so you know, the so we look for that. So you mainly key in on the on the speech development. Um one thing that so in, 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 in kids, the most common cause of hearing loss isn't a permanent type, but instead it's fluid on the ear from an ear infection or um, or for other reasons. And that turns out to be pretty common. And the classic story with that would be a child who started to seem to be able to develop some speech and language, was doing OK, and then kind of hit a plateau where they just didn't progress very well or or even maybe regressed a little. They weren't quite as verbal as they had been previously. So, okay. and that, and that is actually, if that is the case, if it's a, if it's a, a fluid issue behind the ear, that's actually a, a one that I like to see a lot because I can, I can fix that, that, that responds very well to draining of the fluid. If you can drain that fluid, those kids do much better. And, and we do that very commonly, for example, when we put ear tubes in and, you know, almost daily in my practice, I'll have a family come back who will tell me that once we put ear tubes in, a, in their child because of fluid um, their speech and language just you know, just took off.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So uh, we often see children at sporting events and other um, types of events wearing headphones. And I understand that it's to protect their hearing. But what other practices would you say, like you, um, what other practices would you employ as a parent um, outside of just the headphones at a loud stadium or
1: concert? Yeah, I mean, so, so, right. Mm -hmm. So headphones are great. Um, I certainly have headphones for my kids um, when we take them. Not not mm-hmm. currently in the pandemic, but, uh, you know, outside of pandemic times, if we're listening to loud music outside or something, we certainly have those for our kids. Um, you know, there are, so the, the, there's a, there's a bunch of different rules of thumb on that. Um, the, the first thing to know is that there is a real percentage of kids who do end up developing um, some degree of measurable hearing loss. So there was a study that came out a few years back that that sh- showed that about 18% of kids by their by their late teens, early twenties, will have a measurable hearing loss. Now that doesn't mean those kids wow. all need hearing aids, but there's a real measurable impact, and we think largely that does have to do with sort of noise exposure. And the biggest thing that we fear is um, is the earbuds. So, and and the reason oh. for that is 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 that you can is that the sound is the same, but the but the problem with those earbuds and headphones, but particularly the earbuds, is that when kids wear those they isolate the sound so much to their ear that they can really crank it up high for themselves. And, and nobody else is sort of aware of it. And so you can sort of, you can really, you know, you can really damage your ear and, and nobody is sort of aware that you're listening it to too loud. So one, one way you could approach that, they do have headphones that are um, that are open to the air, so they look like over-the-ear headphones, but they don't have the sort of little suction cups that go over the ear, but are just sort of almost like speakers on the ear. Mm-hmm. And those ones bleed a lot yeah. of inf- a lot of sound out into the into the room, so you can hear how loud a child is using those much more easily. So that's that is sort of one way you can kind of monitor it. Um, there was there was a time where people would recommend. Um, there was like a 70, 70, 70 rule where you basically, you try to encourage kids not to listen to it more than uh, 70% of the maximum vo- volume of a, of a, you know, whatever device okay. that they're using and not for more than 70 minutes a day Sorry, um, sorry, 70, 70 rule. Um, I, I think even that is a bit more than I would recommend for my own children. You know, I think you, the general yeah. sort of a, it's not an absolute number, but the, a simple way to look at it is, you know, you want to listen to them to the sound or music, at the lowest volume that you can, basically, right? So the lowest volume that you can understand it, or that you can hear it appropriately. There's no, you know, for kids in particular, you really want to do, really want to protect their hearing as much as possible. So as, lot, as low as that they can tolerate it is the is the best.
0: Okay, that was my next question because I'm constantly um, wondering how loud is too loud. If I can hear a radio in the other room, should it be lowered when I get back to that room because I shouldn't hear it? um outside of that room like there's also that question of just how loud is too loud but for everyone that's so subjective
1: yeah so i mean so there actually are like um like osha guidelines on noise exposure um and and how what decibel level you have to be at and for how long a period of time before you would encourage true like noise and dose permanent hearing loss so there are actual hard numbers for that um, but I, but i think you're right i think from nobody you know and you can you know if you're really were interested you can actually get little apps nowadays for most phones that measure the decibel levels, um, and so, oh, so I know okay. some families have been have have gone to that length. Um, but I think you're right. I think if you're hearing, you know, if you're hearing a radio or a TV in a in a room that's not in the room that it's being played in, that's sort of you know, you know, in an adjacent room, that's that's probably louder than you would want it to, and it probably at least deserve a check in with the kid and make sure that when you go in the room, it doesn't seem you know overly loud or you can't crank it down a little bit.
0: Okay. So um, early in our conversation, you said that you deal primarily, you do have quite a few patients that are already dealing with hearing problems. And I'm wondering, um, you did talk about the stages of getting into intervention practices, but at what, what, what is that? uh, I should say, what would be the level of intervention at a particular age? Like how far are you able to go? Is a cochlear implant for hearing loss something that you would do for a child at I see. what age? Where would you start that? Sure. Experience? So,
1: yeah. So again, because of newborn hearing screening, we really pick, can pick up hearing loss pretty early in life. So, um, And actually, one thing I should add to that is that so in addition to newborn hearing screening, one of the things that our academy has always sort of had a guidance on is that if the parents ever have concerns about hearing, that it is very valid to do a formal hearing test, really at any age, if the parents have any specific concerns. Parents are often keyed into little things that, um, that turn out to be correct. And I, I, I very strongly believe in sort of mom's intuitions on things like that. So if there are, if you do have a kid who you have you know, any kind of suspicions and you're the parent, then we'd be more than happy to do a hearing test and evaluation on them. In terms of intervention, so okay. because we pick up a lot of kids nowadays in the newborn period or early you know before the first year of life, uh, we certainly can intervene at that age. So um, not with a cochlear implant, but we can fit hearing aids at a very young age. Um, you know, you really within the first few right. few months of life, kids will, will often get fitted for hearing aids. They often have to have them adjusted as they get older and their ears grow, um, but they can get fitted with hearing aids mm-hmm. pretty quickly, pretty early in life. Um, from a cochlear implant standpoint, Um, the goal nowadays is to try to have them implanted by about a year of age. So when they turn 12 months, um, although most centers, um, and including in my practice sort of usually try to air a little bit earlier than that, if you can, depending on how quickly the kid gets into the system. So, but, but usually, but the sort of standard of care in general is about a year of age at this point. And those kids, if they, if, if they do get a cochlear implant by 12 months of age, you would expect them to have very good outcomes in the long term. really be able to, um, you know, to integrate well with mainstream classrooms and not need necessarily additional services they, as, they, as they advance through their schooling. Initially, they would need additional services, but as they get older, they may not.
0: Okay. So you spoke about the fact that we're, um, we're monitoring not only a child's specific hearing, but how much they speak or the words that they develop along the way. And so does that earlier intervention with the cochlear implants also impact how a child is able to express themselves? Because so often I know um, I have, I've had friends who did not mm-hmm. hear. And so their voices were different because it was impacted by their sense of hearing. Is that something that changes based on when someone has Yeah, that for
1: sure. Sense? So yeah, for, so for cochlear implants, Um The we they've been around now for a long enough time, so for about thirty to forty years now, we have experience with them. That the that the types of kids who are eligible for them has grown over time. It used to be a much more limited type of kids, but now it's starting to grow in terms of who would be eligible for them. But generally speaking, it's really only for kids who are or adults who really have no hearing, who are really pretty much deaf. If you have even a small amount of hearing, a hearing aid is generally a better option. so it's really for those most severe hearing loss kids. Um, the And it definitely does impact how early they 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 are exposed to sound information is what we would say. So there are kids who are born with hearing and then in the first few years of life lose that. And those kids would have heard typically long enough to start to develop the normal uh, neural pathways that would have them develop normal speech and language. Um it's the kids who never had access to sound, so who were born deaf and had a delay in terms of when they got a cochlear implant um, or, or, had a, or or a hearing aid, for that matter, who would have a more uh, kind of characteristic uh, speech pattern that would sound as if they were hard of hearing. Nowadays, if, if, a, if a child is, is, gets a cochlear implant at a young age, 12 months or even under 24 months, they generally, you would, you would oftentimes have a really hard time hearing that they had any difficulty uh, with their own hearing when they were first wow. born.
0: That's amazing. I think you've answered uh, all of my questions. So my last uh, question for you would be, um, what are your tips as a parent (laughs) of young children? What would be your tips for other parents? And um, also, what would you like parents to, what would be the most important tip that you would give for any parent in terms of dealing with a child who might have hearing loss. And sometimes I know for a great many parents, there's a certain level of guilt that comes with that. So what would be your best advice um, for a parent, um, either someone who would be a patient or someone that you were. Advising- yeah.
1: So one thing I, I always try to impress upon my family, because you're right when, so when I see a family who has just gotten a diagnosis of hearing loss for one of their children, it is definitely a stressful, emotional uh, day for them, It's a, an impactful time for them, and it is a it is one that is tied up with a lot of emotions. What I what I always try to impress upon them is that in general nowadays we have lots of options, and if they are caught early and we are able to get them plugged in the system, there's a lot of options, and from both of them, a hearing re- rehabilitation standpoint, either from hearing aids or cochlear implants, um, and also for you know for signing and other communication strategies. So. Generally speaking, you know, hearing impairment is very treatable nowadays, and there's lots of options that would allow their children to to very much mainstream into uh, into into typical classrooms should they choose to go that route. Um, so, you know, I I am really happy with what I do because we we are able to get kids into a very happy place. I think, and um, and mm-hmm. and even though it is a stressful time when parents first learn that, generally our kids do really well, and I think I think that's I think that's the most important thing. Um, I don't know, you know, uh, and, and in terms of, uh, how to approach kids with some degree of hearing loss, um, there are some places, you know, the, 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 so for example, cochlear implants used to be a, a more controversial, I would say, um, uh, procedure, I think it's less so now, um, but there, is, but it used to be a little bit more of a controversial procedure. I came from a training program that felt that really any form of communication was important for kids to have. So even in that first year of life, if a child is born with significant hearing loss, you know, getting them started in any kind of communication form. So sign language, you know, trying to get them with hearing aids is important. The more the kid can communicate and interact with his world, the better.
0: Awesome. So, uh, Dr. Mari, thank you for joining us today. This has been very uh, informative, and I have learned a great deal. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for joining us today. If you have questions or would like to leave a comment about this episode, please visit our website at thezebraschool.com. There, you'll be able to access our library of episodes, find parenting resources, and browse our collection of product offerings and more.